should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining me here on this Tuesday. Sorry I had to take yesterday off uh, suffering from severe heartburn. Um... <laughs> going on what's going on with the world well you know that's what's going on uh some things make you have heartburn the michelle meow show is your a through z covering the lgbt lmnop and everyone in between i'm michelle meow your host it's tuesday so that means john zipper of commonwealth club is here with us as our co-host john thanks so much for joining us thanks for having me here michelle hello you so uh how you been i mean are you on vacation too i mean the president is no, I don't get a vacation, though. We did note recently uh, that, uh, remember Anthony Scaramucci? Uh, no. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> the foul mouth recently departed communications director for the White House. He was in office, actually, for a shorter time than Donald Trump will be on vacation here. Oh, oh wow. So, wow. Good little measurement there. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I, us- I usually like to open up the show with just checking in with you. As uh, people who are tuning in, you might know that John Zipper is from Commonwealth Club, and he airs his own program here on the Michelle Miao Show, and it's the week-to-week political roundtable talk. So we might as well just uh, check in with you really quick. What's going on? Um, absolutely nothing. Everything's fine. Uh, not a problem anywhere <laughs> in the world. Trump's on vacation. You know, what can go wrong? Um, I mean, what's going on politically? People are at the moment kind of waiting to see. You know, there's people are following uh, congressional Republicans to see if they're going to show any more independence about the president. But there's there's no like major headline news necessarily. Um, I think what in fact we talked about this last night on our week to week. People have really been talking about things like the Google letter about sex discrimination at tech companies. You've been following mm. that, I'm sure. Yes. Uh, you probably heard that he, the, the person who wrote it was fired. So um, lots of talk and outrage about that here in the Bay Area. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, there's another headline that people are talking about, which, uh, which is the, about the couple who purchase a street, uh, I guess, a, a, a street that... Um, uh, how do I explain this? Well, it, first of all, people have been kind of flipping out over that, but it should be pointed out, this is a private street. I mean, it, it, it's not like they purchased a city street. This is a private street in a gated community. So, you know, a bunch of rich people built a, their own little development there, and they have their own private street inside, and I guess someone owned it and then lost it in a tax uh, dispute or something with the city, so it was sold. So, 
this affects nobody except a bunch of people with a lot of money. <laughs> so somebody bought uh, a private street uh, where a bunch of billionaires and millionaires live in San Francisco. And so it's made headline news. And of course, that has made residents super furious and angry. Um, we'll see how that all plays out. But I don't know. You know, this is a uh, it's a tough topic to discuss. I mean, if you were a property owner and the homeowners association failed to take care of something as small uh, as these tax fees and all of a sudden parts of your your home, um, whatever is considered, you know, city property is up for sale or not well, city not property. City. It's, it's, it's private. Yeah. It's up for sale. It's I mean, common what, area, I guess. Common area. Yeah. That's what I mean. So, like, for example, like a, a curb or something, uh, a driveway or something. <laughs> I don't know if that could, a driveway could be considered as that. But imagine that being purchased by some strangers and they could do whatever they want with it. <laughs> well, again, it, it's, I, it, it's a private street. So it's not, to me, it's not even an issue. It's, I don't care. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, let's move on to the program. We have a great program for you and two awesome guests. Uh, we'll just check in with the community of activists, artivists, people who are doing things and, and checking in with, you know, their work. And a lot of people now are moving, they're shaken, but also a huge part of our community has always been there, always resisting, always working to make it a better place. And so we'll check in with two great activists here on the program. Today's show is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Our next guest is Ken Folks, who uh, is an incredible, uh, I would say, artist and activist, and someone who has created a platform and a space, really, for marginalized voices in art and activism. Ken is the founder of Sp Spectrum Queer Media. Let's welcome Ken to the program. Ken, thanks so much for making some time for us this morning. Oh, thank you. Blessed Rising. I really appreciate you and the work that you all are doing. Uh, so let's talk about a little bit about Spectrum Queer Media and just, um, you know, what it's all about and some of the projects that come out of uh, Spectrum Queer Media. I just want to introduce you to our Progressive Voices family really quick. Hey. Um, well, first of all, hi, John. Hello. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing well. Glad to get to talk to you That's today. That's great to hear. Oh, I'm, I'm looking forward to meeting you as well. I think that the work that we're doing, I'm sure, I'm not thinking about it like it's a, a pinch of thought. I, I'm certain that the work that we're doing as marginalized community members is important work because in the discussion of equity and diversity, I don't know how you can have a conversation that is centered on the privileged and expect to see any real change occur. And so what Spectrum Queer Media does is it really centers marginalized voices in our LGBTQIA 2S community. We've also discovered that there are a lot of people who feel out of sorts, who don't necessarily see themselves as part of the rainbow community, but definitely see themselves as strong allies. So we have been creating platforms as a community to allow people to have access to what, what we are experiencing, for example, the push out of the marginalized QTTOC community in Oakland has been this really violent and quick push that a lot of people, if they're not careful, they still miss. 
you know? And so it's important to have us in spaces where we can say, hey, Colonial Donuts, it's not necessarily that they are LGBTQ um, folks who are running and managing it, but that's been a safe haven for many of us who are homeless. Mm -hmm. That's a place that stayed open 24 hours. And so there, there are other conversations of alignment with people who don't necessarily see themselves as part of the Rainbow Tribe that are, um, you know, folks are starting to ask, like, why aren't we listening to marginalized voices? Mm-hmm. Why aren't we? So Spectrum Queer Media asks that question by answering it and saying, here we are. Here we are. Here we are. And, and anyone can get a, a, an overview of You do a wide variety of things if they go to SpectrumQueerMedia.com. My question for you is, has the focus of, of what you're doing or the uh, reaction you're getting changed much since President Trump came to power? Most definitely. Most definitely. I think that when he started his campaign of hate, it affected, um, unfortunately, it affected a lot of privileged people within our own Rainbow Tribe. There's a way that folks, I think, in their, their fear, their unfounded fears, as well as some of their very real fears, started to... Um, express that anxiety with the people who are most immediately present. So we found as marginalized Rainbow Tribe members a real push out from within our own community as well. Not the marginalized community, but the more privileged, more quote-unquote mainstream Rainbow community. So the most pressing thing that's happening right now is that in 2011, a group of black QT folks created a run for everyone. And what we're experiencing now is this push out from within the Rainbow Tribe, from folks who were white skin identified or passing. And I think that there's, that has to stop first. That, that is where we have to begin. We have to look at the ways that the Castro has in many ways never really been a safe place for us. And now we need to reach out into other areas like the Tenderloin and start giving resources. You know, instead of expecting everyone to go to the Castro and the Mecca, Let's start redirecting some of those resources and some of that attention to areas that, for us, as marginalized people, have been our mecca. That's been our homeland. That's been our safe haven. So um, in the same way that this run is free for everyone, it's available for anyone, and it's accessible by, um, you know, all of the many ways that people might feel marginalized. It's a walk that you can run. So I'm disabled. I'm differently abled. Sometimes I can't walk or run, so we also have made it a role. People can come and still in being in the community and experience um, the beauty and the magic that the lake offers. Mm-hmm. It's a shame that there's a group, the Queer Gym, that has decided to appropriate not just the run, but the actual space in the same day as our annual run. So we have two runs, one that is for-profit and one that is free, that are literally competing against each other, and we don't believe that competition like that makes any sense. So we've invited them to join free run, and yet um, we haven't received any response from them. So we have a petition right now. We are at almost 200 signatures in about four days of, you know, just putting out an invitation for them to join us. So I think that the number one thing that we have to start addressing is the way that privilege acts itself um, out in our own communities. 
like what does it actually not just look like, but what are the actions of oppression attention to? And then lovingly, like I don't want to call them out, I want to call them in. Mm-hmm. You know, so I haven't said, damn you, queer Jim, you know, people, them in the, I'm like, hey, no, they're, they're part of our tribe, we need to just call them in and tell them this is a free run, imagine how beautiful it would be if we were working together. Ken, thank you so much for bringing that up, and I well, just want to uh, put it out there to our listeners who are, might be just tuning in. We're talking about uh, Oakland Pride. We're talking about um, the LGBTQ space, marginalized voices, and Ken had just given us an example of how within our own spaces, within our LGBTQI space, uh, we are furthering marginalized groups within our own community and not addressing the privilege, and so that uh, Ken brought up the example of a, a two runs that are happening in the East Bay in which one group, uh, part of the LGBTQ community, the Queer Gym, is doing their own run, which is a cost-based run. And then there had always been, historically speaking, before the cost-based run, a free run that has been produced by kin and community members. Um, and I, I really appreciate what you have to say in terms of calling in versus calling out. Uh, which, which you know, there's this bigger discussion that's happening, and John and I have asked this question here on the show, which is how does the LGBTQ movement, how, do, how are we doing as far as, like, the resistance movement in general when we have someone, uh, the president even, a, an entire administration who's fighting, uh, you know, our communities? And so you've got those people who are impacted, but yet at the same time, what are we doing to engage and unite our communities? And I think what I'm hearing from you is we've got to do a better job in addressing privilege. Exactly. I think that there's a way that fear dictates a lot of these decisions around pushing each other out. And so the first thing that we have to do is recognize that by uniting, we're much stronger. And there's a way that our love because we, we love without the boundaries, these falsehoods that have been created um, that tell us that there's only one way to love. If anyone is going to figure out how to create um, a unified force that is positive, that is centered on spirit, it should be us. It should be us. It should be the rainbow tribe. I think that anxiety needs to be acknowledged. And so it, calling people in, calling them in with love, and also calling them in with compassion and being clear with them, being authentic in terms of what, what the hurt is and letting them know that this can be alleviated by doing this. So like with the Queer Gym, for example, we came up with this notion as black QT folks to have a run around the lake the, on Oakland Pride Eve. At the time, I was um, the entertainment chair on the board of Oakland Pride. And I felt that we needed to have a space that was sober and um, would give us a chance to be out in the open um, and to be very visible to the city. And I think it's wonderful that the Queer Gym came to our run, thought that it was a great idea, and wanted to also institute a run. So in terms of calling them in, we're just saying, come to our free run, choose another day. It's another day for the room. It's not that difficult. See, a lot of what happens, I think, is that people believe that the answer is much more, um, you know, complicated. 
but it really is um, a pretty simple fix. Just choose another day. There are several months. Please don't choose October. I can't remember what day it is because there's another run in Oakland that the um, East Bay front runners have been putting on for years, a beautiful run that happens in October, which is why we didn't choose October as our month because we were being very thoughtful about um, wanting to participate in their run, quite frankly, you know. And so um, the other thing that I wanted to quickly point out is that when you are an oppressed person, oftentimes it's difficult because you're carrying the weight of oppression to see that the person next to you has a, a heavier load that they're carrying and that they are perhaps, perhaps carrying part of your load. So when we have these conversations about privilege, um, oftentimes people will push back because they're experiencing oppression in their lives. They don't oftentimes understand the multiplicity of oppression that intersectionality brings to someone's life. So, for example, um, looking at some of the places that are closing in Oakland, looking at the way that people are being pushed out of different spaces, um, I'm sure that the Queer Gym feels that this is a great opportunity to push forth our, our community. However, given that the space was already occupied by our community, instead of um, bolstering it, I think that they saw it as an opportunity to, um, to simply step up because they feel that they're oppressed too, you know? Right. If so I, I, I think I get it. Like, they want to make sure that they can compete with other gyms who are making a, a lot of money, and maybe that's their model. I do think that there's something to be said about a business practice that respects the, the history and the legacy of the community that you say you come from. Though. Yeah, I would have been more impressed had they come to you and said, hey, we'd like to sponsor your run. Um, you said oh, that would be marvelous, <laughs> because this is community funded. <laughs> well, exactly. Great. Well, and, and I, I, you, you mentioned that you've got a, 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 a petition. Where could people go if they wanted to support that? Oh, thank you. Um, well, right now, we're really just pushing it through my Facebook page, okay. which is Kinfolks, um, K-I-N-F-O-L-K-Z. They can also go to spectrumcareermedia.com. And I failed to mention that we have a Revolve Fest. Revolve is, a, right now, it's an 11-day, gosh, 10? 10, 10-day. 10 10-day long festival. And it's so long because what it does is it recognizes all of the other ways that we show up as um, rainbow geniuses. So Pride is, on that one day on September 11th this year, a great stage, a platform for some of us. It isn't necessarily um, structured for authors. I'm an author. So, you know, we've got to have spaces for that. We also need to have space for conversations about um, difficult things or um, conversations that might move us forward as a community. So we have panels, like we're having a panel discussion called the Poly Panel, and we're going to look at conversion as a principle and a practice that we all can benefit from, whether you're poly or not. We're going to have a um, trans photo booth, a free photo booth for people to come out on September 2nd and September 9th at Lake Merritt. And um, in addition to being able to take a picture that can be used for passports, can be used for work, they also, um, this group, an incredible group that's done this for three iterations, will mm -hmm. also offer an ID change informational. So they'll be able to share some 
important documents with people who were in the midst of um, realigning toward their authentic identity and making certain that the, the government understands who they are. Wow. Wow. That is a lot of great, incredible work. Can we have it for free? Yeah, I know. And, and, and I want to come back and I want to talk to you some more about, uh, you know, overall gentrification within the Bay Area, how that's impacted our community and also oh, the wow. marginalized voices. Uh, so stay with us. I got to take a quick break. OK, sure. No worries. Thank you. The Commonwealth Club of California is the nation's leading public forum engaged with the most important issues of the day. More than 450 times each year, we feature programs on politics, LGBT issues, literature, science, entertainment, and more. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Google Play. Watch our videos on YouTube and Facebook. And when you're in the Bay Area, join us in person for our daily programs. Learn more about the club at commonwealthclub.org. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say, I do. Especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. Many nonprofits rely on events to raise money, create space for community gathering, and offer opportunities to network. But how many hours in a day do community leaders have when they're busy changing the world? Imagine your next event, gala, festival, or celebration professionally executed with creative ideas and ideals to match your community service. IDK is the community's trusted event production company. Visit idkevents.com for all your event production needs. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us here on this Tuesday. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. And our special guest on the phone is Kinfolks, who is the creator and founder of Spectrum Queer Media, an internationally recognized Oakland, California, USA-based social justice community engagement and media literacy advocacy group that empowers LGBTQIA and ally communities. Uh, Right before the break, we had just heard from Ken about all the great, amazing things that Ken and the community is involved in in the the Bay Area and providing resources for the most marginalized. And we're having this bigger conversation about privilege within our own community and how we really need to address that in order to unite. I think that that's the most important thing. I mean, I I feel like, and again, like I'm only 35 years old and I haven't been a part of huge social justice movements here in the country except you know, the LGBTQ fight, and then in my own existence as a woman of color, 
a non-conforming person, I think, you know, have been uh, involved by default in certain issues that I'm passionate about. But as far as like this this bigger conversation of where are we within the LGBTQ movement, I feel like there's so many voices out there and so many conversations that are taking place that's really taking away from what we could be doing to create change. I mean, is there really anything wrong with addressing privilege and as it applies to financial empowerment or financial privilege or economic privilege, as well as racial privilege within our own community? Um, when it comes to the race, I think a lot of people tend to say, or you know, the LGBTQ community is not as racist as as the you know country in general. But uh, but it, but that statement in itself is incredibly ignorant um, and and also dangerous. So Ken, I wanted to hear your thoughts on this. The most, and I thank you so much for your awareness. I I really appreciate that you're creating a platform for us to have these conversations and to exchange ideas, because really the exchange is what's most important. We can agree to disagree as long as we're aware of each other's stance. We can, we can begin the work. So I think that our, our biggest challenge, actually, is our language. When I say our language, I don't mean like the various languages that we speak, but this notion of colorism and how the word black and the word dark is used on a continual basis to describe the most malign things, the most evil, the most demonic. Um, and it justifies the mistreatment of people who are actually black-skinned or dark-skinned or brown-skinned, or define themselves, uh, identify as brown or black people. And so looking at how even the most well-meaning um, people who have the privilege of not being marked with that kind of definition of self um, it's difficult for someone in that instance of privilege to see the ways that even their language on a daily basis is abusing someone else. So when someone says it was a dark day in history for the European nation when so on and so forth happened, black folks probably had very little to do with whatever that instance was, but our language allows us to constantly um, nick away at our notion of blackness as anything other than um, divine, you know? So I, I think that when I'm having conversations about um, privilege and oppression and how it meets itself out in our community and how we can start to address it, I typically will ask questions like, well, what, what language are we using and how are we defining these words? Because in order for us to find common ground, we actually have to agree upon certain definitions, right? So for me, I ask that people not use the word dark or black or even brown negatively when they're speaking to me um, and to really think about how to adjust that in their own lives. You know, that's a decision for them to make, but definitely if we're engaged in a conversation, I ask that they respect me enough not to speak like that. Um, for me, it's um, I would rather... I would rather that people use outwardly derogatory terms so that it's clear that you're harming me than to use these insidious hidden terms, you know, that we've become accustomed to defining this way. So right now I'm asking people to go to change.org where they'll find the petition um, inviting the queer gym to join us, but they'll also find that there are people who are starting to question why our, our um, dictionary 
the Webster's, the Oxford, the Merriam Dictionary insist on maligning blackness. So I just wanted to throw that out and then um, point out that in these conversations around privilege with people who already feel marginalized as um, rainbow community members, because indeed a white gay man, a white gay cis man, let's be clear, might have an experience of oppression walking into a room where the cis het white men are creating a hierarchy of importance. We understand that. That hierarchy is actually a pyramid, and we have to start addressing the fact that black trans women who are clearly at the bottom, and black indigenous, um, because I am black and both indigenous, and indigenous um, people are experiencing a heavier weight, a heavier load. And there's an assumption that if you help someone who's experiencing more of a load, then that means you're taking on their trauma. And who wants to do that? But actually what happens is that you, you feel a kinship and alignment with a larger community that I think is necessary for us as human beings, as social beings. We need that. We actually need to recreate tribe on a larger level with more diversity. That's the only way that we'll understand how to um, react and not just um, be reactive, but proactive in a lot of instances of oppression or attacks on our rainbow community. So another instance that would kind of illustrate this or highlight this is what happened at Strut recently, that um, there was someone who wrote in and basically they said, is this black love, because that was the name of the event, just for black people, like can white people come? It was, I'm paraphrasing it. Mm -hmm. And that was perceived as a threat, whereas... And that's because the people who were, quote, in charge, quote, unquote, in charge, um, overall, were not, they didn't have the sensitivity and the awareness that black trans people have who are producing events. The, in the events that I produce, that's, that's a common question, actually. And usually it's, it's a question that's meant to create respect for space usage. You know, they're asking, is this an affinity space? Is it okay that... Um, white identified people are in the same space for an event that's being cured as a black love event. I think that's a really thoughtful, a mindful question. But it wasn't perceived as one, and it wasn't because the people who, you know, were reading this um, are somehow flawed. It's just that they didn't have access to the same kind of experiential reality that I have or that other people have. Do you see what I mean? So we've got to see connecting and carrying each other's load and carrying the load of those who are most oppressed first, let's mm -hmm. be clear, mm -hmm. as a benefit to our community. Yeah. It's like, it's like having a, you know, a multiplicity, an arsenal of really wonderful, yummy ways to create um, prosperity and, and abundance and love not just for our community but for other communities. We can't do that if we don't understand all of the different ways that humanity exactly. will, will interact. Exactly. And, and you know, and, uh, another thing is just to stop and listen, and you don't necessarily need to question everything everyone says. I feel like there's so much questioning uh, within our community when it's like now's the time to be learning as well, and it's okay to take 10 steps back, and you're not always right. Um, and uh, I should note that, you know, Ken, as you're helping us understand this, 
I'm a non-conforming queer uh, woman of color, lesbian at time. You know, I, I say lesbian because that's how I started when I came out. Um, but uh, John is a white, gay, cisgender man. And so these conversations are incredibly important. John, I think you had a question. Actually, I, yeah. I, th I think a lot of what you just were going through and explaining probably feeds into your answer to my question, which is we talked early, kind of at the beginning of the show um, about this, you know, this story over at Google where this, you know, person wrote this uh, uh, yeah. thing saying, well, oh, women can't be tech, yeah. And I noticed one of the things you folks do is media, you, you do diversity training. And, and I, I kind of uh, would assume you bring a lot of what you just were describing into those kinds of trainings where you're, you're talking about really getting the folks there to understand what the other person's going through and how they are not in opposition to each other. Am I at all right? Oh, definitely. And also to see the benefit mm -hmm. for, um, for a lot of people who perceive this as a loss. Right, like we we don't live. Um, I think we live with a mindset of scarcity, yeah. And so it affects the way that people perceive diversity, increase in diversity is somehow a loss of their power. And so it's really important to first point out that we we are by nature um, wired to be social, because it naturally it you know from an evolutionary standpoint it's a benefit for us to actually have multiple perspectives. And so when you are speaking to a company, definitely, um, for them, the bottom line oftentimes financially is what matters the most. And even that is impacted by a lack of diversity because you can't anticipate, you can't think about um, how your product or how um, the marketing of your system or your program will, will interact with a diverse number of people if the folks who are creating it don't represent that diversity right. or don't have any sensitivity around it. So, you know, sometimes you have to start where people are, are standing. Most, mm -hmm. most often that's where you have to start, actually. Mm -hmm. You have to really look at where a person is in, in terms of their readiness to accept these truths. Can and I, I read that document. I read that document. I read the entire document, and I belong to several tech groups. Mm -hmm. Um, who are creating conversations around diversity. And I felt that this was an opportunity to sit in conversation with this person. I know that they were fired recently, and I understand why that was important to do. I also think that this raises in a, uh, the question of whether or not this kind of censure is and I don't think that they were censuring him. I really think that they needed to, they needed to take him out of a position of power. You know, they needed to do that. I also think that it opens up a dialogue around how to engage people like him who feel that everybody else is getting some sort of leg up that they don't deserve. You know, how how do you engage someone like that in a conversation, for example, about um, reparations for the descendants of African people who were brought here in chains and spent over 250 years building the wealth of this nation. Like, if we're talking about a leg up, let's really talk about it. You know, let's look at it over the entire span of our existence um, from the colonial standpoint, but also from an indigenous standpoint, which is much older. So I think that this is a great opportunity for us to expand 
the the awareness of these truths. These aren't we're not making these things up. These things this is history. This is this is our story. This is our right. human story. Right. You know, we shouldn't be afraid of, of you know, the truth. No, we like definitely the, uh, shouldn't. You know? <laughs> yeah. Ken, I want to thank you so much for taking some time this sure. morning. I know that you're on your way to work, and uh, we have yep, much yep. more to talk about. Uh, I'll see you tomorrow as we'll, we'll tape for the TV show. But I really, really appreciate your authenticity and honesty and just uh, not and then courage, not being afraid to just say what we need to say. Thank you so much. Most certainly. I appreciate you, and thank you, John. I appreciate both of you. Uh, again, and I look forward to tomorrow. And um, I also wanted to just quickly say that um, I want to give a lot of love and encouragement to people who are differently able. I have Asperger's, and I'm also uh, I have lupus, and I know that a lot of us are in physical pain on a daily basis. And right now, with all of the other stress that we're experiencing, it it isn't um, an easy go for us. And I just want to say that you are our superheroes and understand that you're not alone, and we're going to make this right. We're all going to work together to really bring this, um, bring this um, evolutionary step forward into fruition. Love, love everything okay. that you're doing. Uh, one last time where people can sign the petition on change.org. Oh, yes. Um, that's a great question. Um, I don't, it's a long, long change.org uh, link. So what I can do is put it on the Spectrum Queer Media website. When I get into work in about five minutes, I'll place it on the SpectrumQueerMedia.com website. Perfect. And then people can just click the link. I appreciate it. And we're looking for sponsors. You can imagine that since we're um, community loved up um, and that we're community under duress in Oakland, we are blessed that we have um, Good Vibrations came on board, Hella Gay. They jumped on board, um, Ships in the Night, um, Blue Echo um, Boutique. So it's been lovely that the community has stepped forward. We do have to pay for permit fees. We have costs associated with it, and none of us are making money from this. Any additional money that's raised, so any net, goes to the Transgender and Intersex Justice Project. That's so great. Well, uh, hopefully then we'll have a bevy of people calling in to sponsor and support this amazing and awesome run. Um, Ken, thank you so much for all that you do. Thank you, dear. I appreciate you. I'll speak to you tomorrow face-to-face and looking forward. Perfect. Have a blessed day. Thank you. Don't go away. When we come back, the show continues with another activist, and this time we're talking to someone who has experienced San Francisco and eviction. Don't go away. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. 
health care reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year, with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us here on the program. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us as our co-host. And uh, we just finished the first half of the show having a very, very honest and genuine conversation about privilege, about race, and about supporting one another, especially in the most marginalized voices of our community. And ladies and gentlemen, and boys and girls, flies, you know, walls, uh, whatever, all of us, it's not that difficult. It's not that hard to have these uh, conversations that we find so so controversial to have compassion for one another. And so I think it starts there. Have some compassion, listen, have some patience, and uh, find out ways in which we can move forward in supporting the entire community as well as the most marginalized. And, and don't be afraid to, again, redirect the resources to support our community. Let's uh, let's head into the second half of our program. I'm really excited to speak to our guest who is on the phone. We're finally able to make this happen. But he's a former DJ, definitely an outspoken LGBTQ uh, person and personality. And um, and he's part of our history and he's got a lot of things that he can share with us on this program today. And so if it helps the young millennials or any of us. Uh, be reminded that that there were those who came before us and those who fought really, really hard. Uh, our next guest is the guy to tell those stories. So, John Sugar, welcome to the program. Uh, thank you so much, Michelle Meow. I'm excited to have you on the program. I know we've been um, trying to work out our schedules. Uh, let's talk about you. I want to hear, you know, <laughs> just um, why don't we go all the way back to John Sugar is a young lad, where where did you grow up? What was life like for you as a young kid? Um, okay, let's make it half shtick and half true fact. Um, so I always tell people I was the big baby, born on the 4th, 5th, and 6th of August, uh, as well as a strong baby from dodging that coat hanger for nine months. <laughs> uh, I was born... Um, with uh, force of trauma to the brain, which means I have or had excellent speaking skills, but uh, um, terrible hand-eye coordination and no coordination in general. And then at around 13, it was decided that I was homosexual, 
And <clears throat> there was a, a rumor that floated around my my school that I cannot I cannot share with you on the air. Uh, but I will tell you, it led to my principal and the school nurse contacting my mother and having them put me on the psychiatric treadmill. And after about a year, I got um, electro electroshock treatments to assuage my homosexuality. And um, I'm still gay, but I get an erection every time I turn on a light. Um which brings me to school. Um, I was beaten up rather badly from 6th until 12th grade. I went to North Miami Senior High uh, with some of the most backwards, meanest kids you could possibly imagine. Um, and I wish somebody could have got to me at some point and said, look, by the time you graduate high school, within three months, you will never see these people again. Um, <clears throat> and when I graduated, I, uh, my mother pushed me out the door and said, you're on your own. But I really hadn't learned a thing. But I did learn about homophobia, uh, which I've been learning for quite some time. I mean... Electroshock shouldn't ever happen to anyone. Um, and the doctor made this terrible mistake, giving me force of damage, as in my mother had a cesarean, and he reached in there and squashed my little brain with his salad tongs. Um, and then, voila, um, I am a young adult fumbling towards my own acceptance. Um so I guess I'm yeah. around 20. Yeah. No, no, no. I must have been around 22. There was uh, uh, the, both the Democratic and, Nash and uh, Republican convention, both of them held in Miami. And the headline in the newspaper said, Hippies, Hopheads, and Homosexuals for McGovern. Uh, there was a march. <clears throat> on Miami Beach, down Collins Avenue to the Bayfront Park. And the march consisted of 13 people, even though there were possibly 50,000 LGBT people in Miami. Only 13 of them would come out in the hot sun to march. And the marchers, each one of us had our own policemen policemen on motorcycles, uh, and they rolled ahead of us, and as we came into the finish line, they had rotten tomatoes, which they threw at us, um, but it only made my determination stronger, and I think people like me, once, you know, once they, they don't just come out, they, you know, they kick the door open, um, I was uh, pretty much terrorized my whole youth. Um, you know, I used my mother was unusually cruel. I used to tell people, you know, I think ticks had better mothers. But I know wherever she is, she's looking up at me right now. <laughs> 
Um, there's a lot. There's a lot there, and uh, and I want to I want to make sure that people heard that. I mean, you went through a period in which you know there were much more or extreme homophobia than someone might be facing today, uh, and one of the experiences that some people might have only read in articles in her books is being um you know you mentioned it uh, going through electroshock what was uh, what was that like and how has that impacted your life i think you joked earlier where you know certain lighting can give you an erection but um there are some adverse effects to electroshock um what's interesting is i remember the preparation but i don't remember anything afterwards and it was a long time before I saw a psychologist. I was around 45 when I saw my first real psychologist, and I told him about the fact that I had them, but I couldn't remember anything afterwards. And he said, um, that's quite common, that you know there is short-term memory loss. I, I would think, having gone through all that and everything you've described about your youth and young adulthood so far in, in Miami, I mean, when did you leave there? I mean, I would assume you would have had a strong urge to just get out of there. Did your voice just get an octave lower, or am I tripping? No, this is John Zipper. You're, you're, the other one is there is Michelle. <laughs> fooling. I was fooling you. I know you had to be a guy. You, you might be tripping, too, but I mean, that's separate from that. I am. Um... Right now, I'm facing a. Uh, I have, I have spinal disease. That's my backstory, uh, and I'm scheduled for a neck, uh, a surgery revolving around a crushed disc. Mm. The idea is to put a prosthetic disc in my neck to remove the crushed disc, um, and then the hope is that my bones will fuse with the artificial disc. So I will be. I'll be messed up for several months, according to the doctor, but right now I have to take a fistful of painkillers in order to get through the day. Uh, I really appreciate you taking some time to speak with us, and I mentioned right before the break and us introducing you, uh, those of you who are just joining us, uh, we're speaking to former disc jockey DJ John Zuckman, but he's better known to a lot of us as John Sugar here in the LGBTQ community in San Francisco, but San Francisco knows you, and you know we've we've been talking a whole lot about gentrification. We've been talking a lot about um, <clears throat> the city evicting thousands of people. I think the number is up to like eight thousand people at least in the last few years. Uh, you fought San Francisco in an eviction case. Talk to us about this case that was all over the news, really. Yeah, there were three. There were three stories all together, two in the Bay Area Reporter and one in the Bay Guardian. Um, and um, I honestly do believe when one door closes, another one opens. I lived in an apartment where there isn't any way I, I, I can say this, but the, uh, the landlord was pulling every neighbor aside and telling them lies about me. And I wish I could be more specific. And then I, I guess it was about seven years ago, he started telling neighbors if he could get me out of my apartment, he could make $2,000 more a month. 
I was in a railroad car apartment, and part of this landlord's uh, business plan, uh, his name is Al DiLorenzi. The building is on Stanion and Frederick. And unfortunately, people don't search him up before they, they get an apartment. He was able to dog nine tenants and make them move, you know, just by harassing them, uh, screaming expletives, and he, he wouldn't fix anything. I had windows that didn't shut, a bathroom ceiling that leaked, kitchen floor that was cracked, um, and then I suffered a bed bug infestation, which I got from the hospital. And I got it because they, you know, they used gurneys for everyone. And I got it in the hospital. I had just had, I've had altogether 10 surgeries on my legs. And this, you know, I felt these stinging sensations. So I went along for a few months until I finally saw one. I'd never seen one before in my life. And I saw it on my bed, and I took my thumb and squished it, and blood shot out of it. Bed bugs that they yeah. that that he would not do anything about. Um, but how did you? I mean, at this point, I think the bed bugs really pointed to the fact that this was a negligent landlord who was trying to push p- uh, tenants out. I think that <clears throat> that led to the success of your eviction case. Am, am I correct, or how did you win your case? Um. I don't, I don't know where to begin. He had dogged me for three years, uh, which meant insults, uh, telling, telling neighbors I was bringing 13-year-old boys up to my apartment, which was not true. It's not anything I would ever do. Um, and However, I found that like uh, with heterosexuals, uh, for the most part, they're all cool, but the minute, you know, they hear about an older guy, a much younger guy, they tend to have these knee-jerk reactions. And, you know, soon I was getting the stink eye from many tenants, and finally one came forward and told me about the things that Al DiLorenzi had said about me. Um, and his daughter handled the eviction. And this was the third time they tried this, and this time I had a I had this bed bug infestation. I'd asked him, I told him about it about a year before, and he replied by saying, "I ain't spending no money on no bugs. If you don't like it, you can move." Um, this is uh, he was like as close to Trump as I think you'd ever get. <laughs> you know, all about, you know, never did anything for anybody but himself. A uh, total greed monger. Um, money is God. All that. All that. So so what happened uh, eventually? Did it, did that ever get addressed? I was, I was evicted because, quite frankly, I just gave up. I ran out of strength. Mm-hmm. There was a whole lot I could have done, but I just kind of laid there and let the tank roll over me. And, of course, I look back on it now, and I think there are so many things I could have done. But uh, what did happen is I got into an assisted living situation. Uh, 
I'd had uh, early onset arthritis since I was 34, and um, I started having um, major surgeries in 91 and then uh, all the way to uh, 2013 where my leg had become deformed and uh, I had a total knee replacement and then the correction on the deformity. So the old place, I had to climb three flights of stairs with a bag of groceries and I couldn't do it. So it was fortunate that the system picked me up just in time. John, I, I could sit here and uh, listen to your stories all day and just because I think that they're so relevant, they're so important. We, and uh, good thing that there are a couple articles about your eviction case, but uh, really your experience as far as coming out, living your life authentically, uh, you're well, part you know, of history. But one thing, you know, as we're winding down today that I really want to talk about is that your story really did bring or highlight issues that the city faces and what we're doing to senior LGBTQ, but also, you know, ailing or, or uh, LGBTQI seniors um, who are disabled or, you know, low income. I mean, these are things that are, there needs to be way more resources for. Yes. You know, ever so briefly, I don't know how much time I have, but I'd like to touch on the positive things about San Francisco. Um, number one, um, when I was a, the first time I ever DJed a party, I was 12 years old. I brought this big stack of 45s, and the ad was a 50-cent stag, 75-cent drag. It didn't mean the little children came in drag. It meant that they drugged somebody to the, to the dance. Um, the next time I was DJing orgies in San Francisco, uh, then I formed a band, and the band was really quite popular, and we played to a few thousand people by the time I was done with it. Um, I invented something called the Gay Artists and Writers Collective, which was very popular for around 10 years. Uh, I've made a lot of great friendships here. There are real soldiers out there that are not uh, anti-homeless and they're not uh, anti-poor. Um, the thing I dis uh, have discovered over the past seven years is ageism. Um, you know, I, you suddenly, you know, get that, like, people are giving you the stink eye just because you're old, and they don't know you. And that's the thing you have to hang on to anytime anyone attacks you and they don't know you. Um, you know, it has more to do with them than it does to you. Well, John, we're running out of time, and like I said, I could sit here and listen to your stories, so you have to come back on the show, okay? I'd love that. All right. Um, Thanks a lot for the shout-out, Michelle. You got it. You got it. 
Today's program really was focused on the marginalized of our community and just hearing from voices of those who are fighting against oppression and uh, living during the Trump era. If you'd like to share your story, head to michellemeow.com. I'd like to thank John of Commonwealth Club for being here with us. Make sure you tune into his program Fridays, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time here on the Michelle Meow Show. For everything else, you can head to michellemeow.com. Take care of one another. Love one another.